Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. In today's episode, I'm going to do a couple of different things. The first thing I want to do is to talk to you a little bit about the podcasting process. Uh, Tonight, uh, my wife and son and I uh, went to a team trivia thing. There's a little pizza place that I've talked about before several times called Pat's Place here in Americas that I go down on Tuesday night and play the Dobro with those guys. Well, on Wednesday night, they have team trivia. And my wife and I, back before Jackson was born, used to go play team trivia all the time. And it was just the two of us. And we rarely ever placed in the top three. And uh, we noticed another couple that was there. And they were kind of in the same boat we were. And after about eight weeks of this, we introduced ourselves ourselves to them and said, Hey, why don't we get together and form a four person team? And we did that and we started winning and we called that team four heads are better than two. And, and we were that for probably two years. We played at that, at that pizza place and would, would occasionally come in, in the, in the money and, you know, get our meal for free. It was a lot of fun, but the secret to the thing was the fact that I was pretty good with geography and history and weird science and technological things. My wife was good at things like eighties bands and, um, music and television shows like Seinfeld and stuff like that, that I didn't know anything about. And these other two people, they had their strong points. I remember the one guy, uh, the husband, he was like, he'd watched every movie ever made. So he was a great addition. And I think I forget what her occupation was. I want to say maybe a teacher or something, but when we put our four heads together, we started winning And I was thinking about that tonight on the way over to trivia, that this is the way a good bluegrass band operates. If you think back to Bill Monroe and the bluegrass boys, let's think about the, what is often referred to as the original bluegrass band with Bill Monroe, Lester Flatt, Earl Scruggs, Chubby Wise, I think Howard Watts on bass. Each person brought things to the table and therefore the band was better. And that's the way it is with team trivia tonight. When we were playing, we had, let's see, uh, we had three adults and three children in our team. So we had six person, six people in our team. And there were things that the kids were able to answer that we didn't know. For example, my son, Jackson knew, who, oh, I'm going to, I don't remember now. I've forgotten the exact question, but it was like, who was Henry VIII's first wife? He knew. I think it was Catherine of Aragon. And uh, then another question had come up. It was something about a Disney movie. One of the other kids knew it. Uh, What happens to a goldfish if you keep it in the dark? Uh, The uh, the other kid, Wiley, he knew that one, that it turns pale or white. Anyway, the point is each person in a group brings something to the table and you've got to have a mix of things. And that, that really helps your trivia score. Our team is called chain ape, which I won't describe why we're called chain ape, but tonight first time in, I think we've been playing now four weeks. It's the first time that we have Shown up on the leaderboard, we won the first round. I got a $5 gift certificate, which didn't even barely come close to paying for the the pizza and beer and, and soft drinks. But, hey, whatever. It was some progress. We went the very first week we played, we got last place. And then the, the next week, we were in fifth place. And tonight, I think we came in, I don't know, second or third. But we did win the first round. 
And, you know, that sort of progress is what you have to do when you put a band together and you start bringing in the strong points of each of your members. Okay, but anyway, before we got started playing, we had to get there really early to get a table. I was sitting outside, and one of the guys that works at the pizza place, at Pat's place, he got to talking to me. He says, hey, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. And when he said that, I thought, well, he must know that I have a podcast, and he's going to pick my brain for, you know, how do you do it and, you know, stuff like that. And he got to talking, and I got to talking, and he, and I realized he didn't know that I had a podcast. He was just thinking of interviewing me for his new podcast that he's thinking about starting with another guy. To make a long story short, he and I sat outside and talked for about a half an hour about all the steps involved in podcasting. And it's for me, it's been the learn as you go plan. It's the learn on the job plan. But I have learned a lot about how to do it. And so I was able to give him a couple of tips about, you know, some ideas, you know, behind the technology and how you do it and stuff. But I, I got thinking, you know, probably a lot of listeners don't have a clue what all goes into this. And it, let me tell you something right now. It's a lot more than you can imagine if you've never done it. If you don't know what goes into creating a podcast Let's put it this way. The playing back of a podcast to be on the receiving end is a couple of steps. You go on the podcast app on your iPhone or you go to Stitcher or you go to Podbean or wherever and you find a podcast and you hit play. It's basically two steps. It might be like search for a topic and then you hit play. But that's it. But I just... I'm not going to eat up the whole thing because I got another topic I want to talk about, but I thought it might be instructive to just mention the process, just rattle off real quick. Like I did to that fella, the process of going from an idea to the actual finished podcast. And I'm not going to talk about like branding and what is your intention for the podcast or anything like that. I'm just going to talk about a single episode like I'm creating right now. And I am on step two of this. So let me back up to step one. Step one is something that I have done now. This is the 73rd time that I've done this. And that is come up with an idea, a theme, make some notes, make an outline, write down some thoughts, a little script, something to kind of keep me on track. And I've got a few pages of things here today. Sometimes I have winged it and just gone, you know, off the cuff, flying by the seat of my pants. But today I, I jotted down some different ideas and that's the first step coming up with the idea and kind of trying to crystallize it into something that you can give a title to. What am I going to call this thing? And sometimes, you know, an idea generates and then I write the title and then I start hashing out like, okay, I want to mention this. I want to mention that. I want to mention this. And a lot of times as I am in the process of actually laying it down, I start thinking of other things and I just kind of let the wheels turn. Much like playing music, you know, you may have the greatest thing planned. And then as you get into it, little things start to happen and it, it changes a little bit. And sometimes when I hit stop at the end of it, and then when I listen back to it, I often go, God, I forgot. I totally forgot to even, I never even got into this whole section, which I meant to talk about. And I say to myself at that point, well, Hopefully it makes sense. Maybe I'll come back to that sometime. But anyway, just to uh, just for people who have no idea how a podcast is put together, let me tell you how I do mine on an individual basis. The first step, come up with an idea. I got to have an idea before I hit record. So I get my ideas together. Second step is to actually record it. And I'll just quickly tell you how I am currently recording it. My voice goes into an AKG C1000S microphone that was my beloved favored mandolin mic for many years. Playing with Pony, 
Pony Express and Cedar Hill, this is the mic that I used. And then, of course, I come out a microphone cable into the Mackie 1202 mixer, a little good little old mixer. I come into that, and that's where I basically set the recording levels. There's a headphone out that I can put on some headphones and listen to it. I'm not right now. Um, but I could put on headphones and kind of monitor, you know, what is actually being recorded. If I hit a note, not a note, but hit a syllable too hard and went, you know, pop the microphone, I would hear it, maybe back up and redo it. I'm, I'm flying without the headphones right now. Then I come out of the mixer into a Mac laptop. It's an old, it's about a 10 year old Mac laptop. And it's running an old version of Audacity. And that's what I'm using to record. And I'm looking to my right right now, and the it's scrolling by, and I see the waveform on there, and I see the level of my voice, kind of a little bouncing little, you know, bar graph type thing. So I'm recording. So that's step two is to actually record it. When I finish this... I will reach over to my right and hit the stop button. At that point, my audio is recorded, but I may still need to edit it. And I almost always do edit it. What I will then do is take the, the close the file. And before I actually even leave audacity, I'm going to do a noise reduction on it. And what I do when I get all done recording I let about five seconds of dead air run and just absolute quiet. And if I select that quiet space, let's say, you know, there's some rumble from an air conditioner or something like that. In Audacity, I can select that silent, so-called supposedly silent section and define that as the noise removal and then I can apply that to the whole thing. So if that basic frequency or something is appearing when I'm not talking like right now, the whatever is in there it will subtract out from everything else. So I use that little noise reduction and there's a, there's a level control on it. And I, I run it really light because there's usually not a tremendous amount of noise. So that's the next thing that kind of ends the recording process then I take the file and I export it and I export it as a wave file and I'm recording in mono and what you're listening to is in mono because there's no reason to make it in stereo. It would just make the file a much bigger and, you know, take longer to download. It's just one microphone. So it's in mono as I record. And when I export it, it's a mono file. Step three is editing. I then move the file over to a thumb drive and I take it to my other computer where I've got some other editing software and I will import that into a new audio file. And then I will bring in that music and the little intro that I recorded that is in episode one. It's in all the episodes. I put that at the beginning and then I import the this week's episode. And then if I remembered, maybe I coughed or, you know, there was something I stopped and restart on. Sometimes I'll have little mental notes of like, yeah, there were two places in there. I need to cut out those four seconds or second and a half. I will go in there and find those places. And that can be kind of tedious sometimes because I don't have a director here writing down time codes, you know, at 1202, he coughed, you know, make sure we go back and delete that. I got to go back and find that stuff. And so I scroll through it and I, I'm looking for those places, deleting those, and then just pushing the file back together. So I get everything, all the little, you know, snafus deleted which usually I, I, I'm not too picky about it. If I, you know, if I cough or clear my voice, I usually leave it in. Um, <clears throat> but if it's a major thing, you know, I'll, I will fix it. Like if I stopped and, you know, got my head together and started over again, 
I might edit that out. Then when I get to the end, I will put a, put the outro music. You know, I've got a few tracks that I use over and over and over. And sometimes I've used some stuff that's been submitted to me. I'll put that in there. Then I got to set the levels for all that stuff. So that, that music fades in and fades out. You know, I don't want it too loud while I'm still talking. And then as soon as I'm done talking, I want it to come up a little bit. And then I want it to smoothly fade out. Eventually, I'm finished editing. That is step three, editing. Step four is now I'm going to export the file. So I'm going to export the finished file. And that's going to do a little bit of compression to it so that it's a smaller file size, which is more appropriate for podcasting. Considerably lower quality than what I would do if I were creating a CD track. Okay, so that's step four is export. The next thing is the thing that is the most painful and time-consuming. You know, I've, I've, I've got all my ideas down. I've recorded. I've edited. I've exported. You'd think I'd be done. No. Now, I have to take that file, drop it into iTunes, put my iPod, connect my iPod, and sync that file over to it, copy it over to my iPod, put on my headphones, and i got to listen to the whole episode. I do this every week. I listen to the entire thing in case I miss something. You know, maybe I, I totally, uh, you know, got all screwed up in my thinking and said, Oh, wait, wait a minute. Let me back up. Let me start that again. You know, one of those sort of moments. And I I don't leave those in. So I have to listen to the entire thing. So I sit there And, you know, if it's a 45 minute episode, I have 45 minutes and I listen to me talk. And that's that's kind of bizarre because, you know, it's easy to be highly self-critical when you're listening to yourself. And all you have to do is turn on a recorder and play your instrument into it and you will know what I'm talking about. But I think after all these episodes, I've sort of gotten over that. So anyway, I got to listen to it and check for any little problems. Once I have confirmed that there are no problems, I move to the next step. But sometimes I got to go back and delete something that I missed. You know, I knock something over or I coughed or something. I got to go back and cut that out, re-export it, re-listen to at least that section. I'll probably listen to the whole thing. Eventually, you know, this is, let's say I started at eight o'clock in the morning You know, it's now lunchtime. I'm getting close to being done with it. All right. So I finally export. I've got my finished file. So then I will import that one back into iTunes and I will put the information in about it. I got to give it the correct title, you know, the episode number, and I got to use the right, you know, space, dash, space, et cetera. Get that in there. Write the description few little bits of information that go into iTunes and then I export it from iTunes. So I'm still not there yet. Finally, I've got the actual file that you receive. And then I upload that to my account on Podbean and Podbean is the service that I use for providing you this podcast. So the file is uploaded to Podbean and no matter what platform you're listening to this on, Podbean is sending you the file and that costs me X amount of dollars each year to have that account. And they allow me so much space per month upload space and so much space per month download space. So typically I can do four episodes in a month and not go over my limit for upload data on the download data side. I'm probably running at about 25% of my maximum before I have to move up to the next level as far as how much you pay them. So I'm still got some cushion there. In other words, if you're listening and you tell three other people to listen, I'll still be within the same bracket of how much I have to pay to produce this. Okay, so I upload the file to Podbean. And as I do that, I have to create a description for it. And you've, you've seen my little descriptions where I talk about what's in the episode and I put little links in there, like 
a link over to my store on PayHip if you want to support the show, that kind of thing. Also, I put a link in there to the show notes page. I also then have to stop what I'm doing and go to Photoshop and create the episode art for that episode. It's a little 300 by 300 graphic that if you go to Podbean, you're going to see that graphic. If you go to some other ones, you may not see that that particular one. You may see just the graphic for the whole show, the green one that says Grass Talk Radio and the mandolin. But I create a new, a unique graphic for every episode. That'll take 20, 30 minutes. <clears throat> you know, I'm looking around for a picture. I'm trying to think of exactly how I'm going to set that up. So I'll create that graphic. I will upload that to Podbean. So now the show is ready to go out and I will schedule the episode. That's the next step. I will say, okay, everything's uploaded. I've read it all over and I've checked the links. Everything's working. Okay. I want this show to come out on Thursday at noon and I will put in the date and time for that show to come out. Now, once I've scheduled it, I got to stop what I'm doing. And then I have to go create that show notes page. And I've, I've said in, I think every episode, you know, if you want to find out what a a link to whatever I was talking to, you can go to the show notes page. Well, I got to go over and create that. That is on my own website. So I have to go to the software that I use to create all the pages on my website and create a new page for this episode. I got to, I got to title it and I got to insert the, the correct graphic for this one. I got to upload that graphic to my server. I got to type in the description and then I got to go find all those links, all those things I told you about. Like I, I said, go get Earl Scruggs book or why don't you read the, you know, uh, the music lesson, go find a link to that and bring all those things onto that show notes page just for you. So it's easy for you to find the things that I've mentioned to. I got to put all those things together in that page and then upload that to my site. That might take 15, 20 minutes to do. Then I got to go over to the main grass talk radio show page, the one that lists all the episodes. And I got to go down to the bottom and add this episode to that and point it to the show notes page. Then I got to get on the web and actually look at those pages live and make sure that the links all work, test every link on the page and read everything. You know, by this time, you know, it's like two o'clock in the afternoon. I started eight or eight thirty, and it's now getting about two o'clock. I'm kind of getting sick of this whole thing. I kind of need to be out and mowing the grass or something. And I'm still there proofreading and checking links and all that kind of stuff. Then the very last stage, once that is uploaded and it's all live, is then I jump over to Twitter on on my Twitter account, which is, I think it's twitter.com slash Bradley Laird. And also my Facebook page, which is, uh, I guess it's facebook.com slash Bradley Laird Music. And I'll post that graphic and a link to the show and, you know, just let the world know about it. And then I'm done. <laughs> you know, it's not that much longer. My wife's coming home from work and she's like, yeah, hey, what'd you do today? Well, I put up a podcast. Uh, you know, I spent seven hours fooling around with this podcast. And then the next week, what do I do? I go back to step one and I do it all again. 73 times so far. So the reason I'm telling you all this stuff is you may think, oh, he grabs his iPhone and he starts talking and he pushes a button. It ain't that simple. Okay. It's not that simple and it is not free. So I encourage you that if you enjoy the show and if you want to see it continue, support the show. I've told you many ways you can do that, including, and I will reiterate this week. I said it last week. There, go to, um, I think it's episode 72. Um, there's a little flyer, a little quarter size flyer, print one out. I mean, look, it doesn't cost you anything to share a link to the show. You know, I, I love those likes, you know, put it on Facebook and somebody likes it. Well, like I can't eat light and light, like doesn't tell anybody else about it. 
what I like is share. I mean, you know, share is the minimum, you know, at least share it. Tell, tell your uncle Fred about it, you know, or whoever your friends are on Facebook. Sharing is better than liking. Uh, Grass Talk Radio supporter is better than sharing and purchasing some stuff and printing out the little flyer and hand it to your friends at the uh, next jam session. That's even better. Uh, anyway, enough about that. I will say this. I'm going to do it. You know, I talked a few episodes back about I was going to do an episode talking about the different podcasts that I listen to. And I'm going to come back to that because I am going to tell you about some really cool podcasts that I that I listen to. And if you're into podcasts, you might enjoy them, too. But something I just want to point out, because it's appropriate right here, is that you see a lot of podcasts come and get a good start. And then they just stop. They just stop. And I think that the reason they stop is because they haven't figured out a way to monetize it. If I mean, you know, I didn't create this world, so you can't blame me for how this world operates. But if you just can't continue doing stuff forever for free, you just can't. I mean, I'm sorry. You know, it, admittedly, if I'm a millionaire and I just got money to burn, yeah, I can do stuff, you know, and not get anything in return. But you see some wonderful podcasts come along and you're like, this is really cool. And, you know, like 14 episodes in, you're waiting and you're waiting and nothing happens. And a year later, there are no episodes and You've gone to their website and there's nothing there that generates any income. They don't have a product to sell. They don't even have Google ads on, and it just goes away. And I think that's what probably two things kill a podcast. One is lack of a successful way of monetizing it to make it at least worth doing. I mean, that list of all those things I did, and you multiply that times 73. There's got to be something coming back this direction or, you know, at, at some point somebody just throws their hands up and goes, you know, why am I doing this? You know, like if I was advising someone else and, and they were doing this, I probably would have tried to talk them out of it a long time ago. But anyway, so that's the first reason. And the second reason is I think, you know, people get cranked up on it and they just don't have. They just don't know even why they're doing it. You know, it's like two guys and we're going to talk about, you know, what's on the news or something. And they just kind of run out of steam. Well, I've got, I got a lot of steam left, but I do need some support. So enough about that. Let me get into the real topic today. I want to talk about something that is absolutely critical to playing music. And that is the subject of timing. So this podcast, forget all that other stuff I've said so far. This podcast is really about timing. One episode will not even begin to get into the importance and the, the multitude of ways in which timing works. But I just want to talk about I've been playing around in my head with how the bluegrass machine functions. So don't get the idea that this episode is the be all end all. This is, this is how bluegrass timing works. It's not what it is. It's a little thought experiment to get you to think about how the bluegrass machine functions. Okay. So, now that I've made that disclaimer, let me tell you my basic idea. If you look at a bluegrass band chugging along, playing rhythm, a typical bluegrass band, you're going to have a bass and you're going to have a mandolin and they're going to be alternating notes. The bass is going to hit boom. The mandolin's going to hit that chop, boom, chop, boom, chop, boom, chop, boom, chop, or a lot faster than that. We'll come back to tempo. Boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick. That's the basic underlying bed of a typical bluegrass song for 95% of all bluegrass songs. Boom, chick. 
then you also have the guitar and the guitar is going to play both of those. So he's playing twice as many notes or note and chord. He's going boom, strum, boom, strum, boom, strum, boom, strum, boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick. That little machine right there, the bass going boom, the mandolin going chick, and the guitar doing both. That's the heart of that bluegrass rhythm. And then, presuming the banjo is playing rolls, while the bass plays one note, alternating with the mandolin playing one note, and the guitar is playing two notes, you have the banjo playing four notes. He's playing a roll. So he's going boom a chicka boom a chicka boom a chicka boom a chicka tuka tika tuka tika tuka tika tuka while the bass is going boom 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 the mound boom chick boom chick boom chick boom chick boom chicka chuka chicka chuka chicka chuka chicka chuka chicka chuka that's the machine. That's the basic machine. So if you were thinking about this like in two four time, the bass would hit two quarter notes. Boom, 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 boom. The mandolin would hit in between those. But he's playing, the mandolin chop is playing the same number of notes in a given period of time as the bass. They're just alternating. So they're running at the same speed, but they're 180 degrees out of phase. And the guitar is doing both. Boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick. That's the guitar, and the banjo is ticka, 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 ticka. So the banjo hits eight, the guitar hits four, the mandolin chop hits two, and the bass hits two. Now, admittedly, when the mandolin takes a solo, the banjo and the mandolin swap. So the mandolin's going ding, digga, 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 and he's playing eight, and the banjo's now chop, 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 or something like that. That's the basic machinery. Go back to the, you know, the well go back a long time that's the basic machinery of bluegrass rhythm then you got the fiddle and the fiddle is not really a rhythm instrument it can play the rhythms it can play quarter notes eighth notes 16th notes or whole notes it can hold a note over two full measures so i'm kind of taking the fiddle outside of this this thing we're going to talk about okay now that I've mentioned how the, 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 the ratio of notes, you know, for every bass note, there are two guitar notes, a, a bass note and a strum. And for every bass note, there are four banjo notes, roll notes, or four mandolin lead notes, if you're picking lead in a bluegrass style. So there's a ratio set up there, two to four to eight. Okay, and it doesn't matter what speed you run it at. That machine runs the same way. And so I was I was sitting here thinking about that and thinking, well, that's almost like gears. If I had some gears and I had a gear that had X amount of teeth on it, I'm flipping through my notes here to find my little drawing of the gears. Ah, here it is. Okay. Before, before I get into the entire machine, let me just talk about two players. Let's talk about your bass and your mandolin, because they're the simplest, because they're both playing the same number of notes. The bass is going boom, and the mandolin goes chuck, boom, chuck, boom, chuck, boom, chuck, boom, chuck. Okay, let's imagine that we're going to create those notes with two gears, one of the gears, doesn't matter how many teeth the, the, that gear has, let's say it's 16, and that's the bass gear, and the mandolin gear is also 16, so that when you mesh the two gears together and you turn one of them, the other one turns. Okay? Now, we put a dot on one of the gears, and then we put a dot on... On the bass gear, we put it on the left side, and on the mandolin gear, we put it on the left side. Now, as you turn the two gears, they will mesh perfectly, and you're going to have an alternation of notes. The bass is 
let's say where the dot lands up at the, let's say the dot lands up at the 12 o'clock position, the mantle will be at the six o'clock position. So that's where we're going to start out. And as you rotate the gears, when the mantling goes to 12 o'clock, the base is at 6 o'clock. So they're 180 degrees opposite. And they just merrily spin. Boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick. Whenever one gets to the 12 o'clock position, a note is produced. So they have the same number of teeth in their gears, and they're the same diameter. And they're just working together. Okay, so picture those two gears meshed, turning. That's your basic boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick. Now, if you know anything about gears, you, you know that a gear can be driven by a power source. It can be attached rigidly to a shaft that is powered maybe by an engine or, you know, something, a water wheel or whatever. So one of the gears of that pair of two is driven it is powered and if you connect the other gear to it let's say the base gear is driven by a water wheel and the water is coming over the raceway and falling over a water wheel and turning a shaft and turning the base wheel and the base is going boom 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 then you engage the mandolin gear and it has the same number of teeth, but it's rotated 180 degrees out of phase with the driven gear. It is pushed along by the base. Okay? So the mandolin really isn't driving the beat. It's being pushed by the base beat, if they're gears. Now, here's the thing about gears, though. There is a little bit of slop or backlash in gears. When you have, if you have two gears and they absolutely perfectly fit together, you're going to have friction in there. So there has to be, you have to give them a little bit of clearance for those teeth to engage and disengage and roll nicely together. You can't make them super tight fits or they'll jam. Okay. So, when machining gears, you will machine the gears slightly undersized. So let's say there's four thousandths of an inch of slop. And that means if you took one of the two gears and held it in a clamp rigidly, you could rotate the other gear back and forth just a little bit, and you could feel a little bit of slop in there. That assures that the two gears won't chew each other up. One is pushing the other, but there's a little gap on the other side of the tooth, just a little bit of gap, and sometimes there'll be a lubricant in there to help the two gears mesh. But you must have a little bit of space for the two to fit together. And that little bit of space, which they talk about in tuning machines, like if you're, if you're talking about mandolin tuners or banjo tuners, you'll hear people talk about backlash. Backlash is like if you're turning the, the tuning knob one direction and the tuning post is turning and then you reverse directions and turn back the other way, how far does the knob turn before it re-engages and actually starts turning the post the opposite direction? That little bit of slop needs to be built in there or the gears will just eat themselves up and you'll get some backlash eventually. But that little bit of slop is called backlash. Now, think about this in terms of two musicians. Imagine the one wheel, the one gear is the bass player, and the other gear is the mandolin player. Do we really want the bass player pushing the mandolin player? Where the only drive force is coming from the bass, and that the mandolin is just being pushed along by bass notes. He hears a bass note, and he throws a note out there. He hears a bass note, and he throws a note out there. That's how most gear trains work. you got a driven one. That's the mandolin, and you got the drive, or you got the driven one, that's the bass, and you have the, I'm sorry, let me, let me say that correctly. You have the drive gear, and you've got the driven gear. So the drive is powered, and the driven is just being pushed by the powered gear. We don't want a band to operate that way. I mean, 
you're going to have pretty good timing. If, if both wheels are spinning, if you stood back at a distance, you'd say, wow, that is great timing. Those two gears are just merrily spinning along so perfectly. But if you knew what was going on, you'd know that one gear has all the power, and it's actually pushing the other one. So this is what happens when you have a band with some players in it who are driving the band. They're driving the bus. They're making it happen. And everybody else is being drug along and pulled along like that freewheeling gear. What I think is a much better way would be if both gears are driven. And again, we're just talking about bass and mandolin. If you think about those two gears and imagine that they are both driven, the the base gear has the exact same number of teeth as the mandolin gear, and they're 180 degrees out of phase. you got the boom on one side and the chick on the other. And these two gears, one gear is not being pushed by the other one. It is being driven at the precise speed of the other one. They're both driven. And if they are driven so perfectly that a tooth from one gear can insert between the two teeth of the other gear and not even touch, you know, it comes into the other gear and it leaves that gear and they don't even touch. Because remember, I said that that thing called backlash, that little bit of slop you're going to leave in a gear train so that the gears don't jam up and bind and grind on each other. Let's say that's four thousandths of an inch total. Like if one gear is pushing the other, you have four thousandths of an inch above the tooth of empty space. Well, imagine that both gears are driven and they're driven so perfectly that when those teeth mesh together, they don't actually touch that you actually have two thousandths below it and two thousandths above it, and they just wave by each other and exit. If you got a good power of imagination, I think you can imagine two gears spinning at the perfect speed so they don't actually even touch. That, now that are, those are two players who can play together. But as you can imagine, that's really difficult because when when we're playing music, we're always listening to cues. We're always listening to the other things we hear at that time. If I'm playing mandolin chops, I'm sensing the bass and the other instruments, but let's just talk about the bass only since we're in this little two-gear train. I'm listening to that, that bass, and then I'm trying to estimate where to place the mandolin chop so that it's dead center halfway between the bass notes. And we just work like that. Well, I'm driving the mandolin. He's driving the bass. So we got, we're both driven. We're both, we are two driven gears and we need to mesh. And I, I guess the takeaway from this, if you're a bass player or a mantle player is listen to each other. And if, if you agree with my theory that we're all driving our gears and we need them to mesh and we want them to mesh smoothly, then you got to drive at the same speed as the other person. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? Now, we haven't even added the extra gears. If we put some more gears in for the guitar player and for the banjo player who's rolling along at an even higher speed, imagine if he's spinning perfectly meshed yet not even touching the meshed, the other meshed gears. I mean, if he connected all these gears together and just spun the bass gear, all the other gears would turn. But they're all being pushed by the bass. So the bass is pushing the mandolin. The mandolin's pushing the guitar. The guitar's pushing the banjo. Well, you add up all that slop along the way, and there is no guarantee that the, the, the banjo and the bass are really all that close together. But if all the players are driving, they're all driving at the same tempo, their gears will mesh without pushing or pulling on each other. This is really just a thought experiment. So I was thinking about all this, and I, I got out my son's spirograph. If you remember the old spirograph, it had all these gears, and you'd pin these little gears down on a, 
on a piece of cardboard and put a piece of paper under that and mesh different gears together and create all these drawing patterns by putting a pen in it and going around and around and around. So I got in his box and they're all numbered by how many teeth they have on, on the wheel. So I was trying to find multiples. Like if I could find an 80 tooth, a 40 tooth and a 20 tooth, I could create this little basic bluegrass rhythm thing with those three, three gears. Well, unfortunately, the set doesn't include enough variety of gears to have them all. There was a, uh, let's see, what did I have? Well, I forget the numbers. I won't, I don't have it in front of me, but I was able to put three gears together, but the outer one was a ring gear, and so I couldn't hook three together. But I was thinking about ordering some plastic gears and building a little machine that would simulate the bluegrass rhythm by having a 32 tooth and two eight tooths and a 16. Actually, those would be higher numbers, but that ratio, 32 to eight to 16. And then I thought, what about the fiddle playing those long notes? And I thought, well, I'll just have a little pulley with a belt that goes off to the side. And instead of the, the fiddle having teeth, I'll just make the fiddle part of the machine a roller a smooth roller that way the fiddle can play a long note it could play a note that lasts 32 banjo notes one long note and so i i got these little drawings here of what the bluegrass machine would look like so when i got done thinking about all that i thought about how difficult it is for everyone all the geared members of the bluegrass machine to play at the correct tempo. And trust me, I've been in many a jam session where there were people who didn't play their gear, didn't mesh with the rest. You have played in those situations too. You may have been that person who didn't mesh. And so let me mention a few ways that you can not mesh So your little machines over there running, you know, that bass mandolin thing is the most basic, but let's say the bass and the mandolin gears are one tooth off and the mandolin is coming in one tooth early. You still got the basic boom chick, boom chick, boom chick, and it's consistent. That would be what you call, you know, the mandolin being ahead of the beat. He's one tooth tooth advance but he's still playing at the exact same tempo same number of notes per minute but he's advanced in timing just like adjusting your timing on an old volkswagen beetle you just grab the distributor and loosen the bolt and turn it a little bit they're still in time but they are not 180 degrees they might be 178 degrees out of phase but they're still in sync. Okay. So that one's pretty simple, that bass mandolin thing. But then by the time you add in a guitar, who's doing both of those, well, imagine that the mandolin is slightly advanced and he's hitting his offbeats just a hair early. And the bass, let's assume, is dead on. Well, what's a guitar player going to do? Is he going to play them 180 out or 178 out? You follow what I'm saying? He's got to make a decision who to follow. Is he going to follow the mandolins or going to follow the imaginary offbeat of the bass? This all gets really complicated. And so each person has to drive their gear at the prescribed set tempo for the, for the song that is happening at that moment. So here's another way things can go off. You're a player and you let your speed drift. You, you get a little fast You get a little slow. Sometimes you get a little fast and you realize you're out. So you just skip a tooth, you disengage, and then you re-engage and you you let a few teeth, teeth of your gear go by. And now you're back at sync again, you hope. That's one way. Another way are just like misshapen, misspaced teeth on the gear. Let's say we have the perfect bluegrass machine, this gear train that I've described And you're the guy who is looking up at the TV, watching the basketball game, and you have about four hours total time on your instrument. 
and you're you're not playing in time. Well, if I represented that in the form of a gear, it would be a gear with some broken teeth, missing teeth, teeth too big, teeth too small. You know, that gear is just not going to mesh with the rest of the machine. If you're going to make a gear, you got to make it perfect. You got to have every tooth the same. You got to have that perfect amount of clearance and it's got to be consistent. But if you're not consistent and you occasionally throw in a big old tooth that's way too big or you got one that's missing, you're going to get out of time. And let's say you glance up at that TV just as that guy makes that shot and uh, that's your missing tooth and you're now off by two teeth or one tooth. It doesn't matter. You're off and the machine is still driving and you're not with it. So that's one way is like a screwed up gear. That's what you got to get that metronome out and get your ears out and take that cotton out of your ears and try to play with the machine try to drive your gear at the perfect speed so that it meshes perfectly without contacting the other gears not being pushed not being dragged you just want to fit fit perfectly and wave by you know okay so another way that you can have your timing fouled up would be just to be running that that gear, it may be a perfectly meshed gear, but it's just running at a slightly different speed. If I have those two gears going back to our base mandolin thing, and I run one at a hundred RPMs and I run the other at 102 RPMs, they may be in mesh for a few beats, but pretty soon those gears are going to jam. It's just no doubt about it. You're going to have a, it, you know, it's going to be a monkey wrench in the works. You got to run at the same speed and you got to have a precision made gear and you got to be conscious of the other gears. Okay. So enough about all this talk about gears, because think about that. What is required of all that is for everybody to have the perfect operating machine driven at the perfect speed and meshing perfectly. And you got a cooking bluegrass band. That's going to be pretty difficult so i got to think about maybe there's another way to look at this timing maybe this is the incorrect way to think that each person has his own timing and we need to align all those timings together maybe that's wrong maybe it's right so this is only a theory and and a thought experiment but imagine that we had a kind of a different scenario imagine that instead of concerning ourselves with the timing of gear one and gear two and gear three and gear four and the belt going over to the fiddle player and the dobro player that instead of all that what we had was one big giant wheel turning just a big wheel like a merry-go-round just a big wheel in space that turns and it turns at the same speed all the time for eternity and it's a big wheel like a giant flywheel if you want to picture something picture a merry-go-round the the floor of a merry-go-round or a, a turntable of a record player just imagine that wheel and you've left it on 33 and turned it on and accidentally left it on all night that wheel will just turn and turn and turn and turn and turn Maybe this is a better way to think of timing. Imagine that music has this giant wheel that we'll just call time, and it's always turning. Now, if you look at that wheel, if you look at that spinning wheel or that turntable, and you look at the outer edge of it, it's going by pretty fast. But the closer you get to the center the slower that wheel is turning. If you put a little, uh, like took a little tin soldier and took a, took a record player and got a record turning and stood a little tin soldier right next to the spindle in the middle, he'll turn around that spindle fairly slowly in terms of how many miles per hour is he going pretty slow because it's close to the center. But if I take that tin soldier and stand him on the outer edge of that record He is really moving. 
Because the turntable is turning 33 and a third rotations per minute, but he's a lot farther from the center, so he's got to cover a lot more ground. It's like if Pluto goes around the sun once a year, it's going faster than Venus, you know, because Venus is a lot closer to the center. So the farther out you go from the center, the faster you go. So you could think of this giant wheel as a multi-tempo wheel of timing. If you want to increase in speed, you simply move out from the center. You want to decrease, you go towards the center, and at absolute dead center is zero, theoretically. And if you had a large enough wheel, if you want to go faster and faster and faster, this is all presuming that the wheel of time is in constant motion, never changing, like a a natural law of the universe or something. Just imagine this giant wheel. Might be the wheel that Ezekiel saw. Who knows? But as you move farther and farther out the wheel, and imagine you have an infinitely large wheel, the farther out you go, the faster you get. So let's talk about a wheel that is within human comprehension and human abilities of playing. You know, a mandolin player can only pick so fast. So we don't have to have an infinitely sized wheel. We just need a wheel big enough to accommodate that. So now imagine you got this sort of time reference. Instead of each member of the band having their own time reference and trying to mesh perfectly with all their buddies and make it all work, or not trying and just being pushed along by the other members, that's probably how most bluegrass bands function that, that don't sound that good. But the I would say that the better ones, instead of one pushing the next, pushing the next, the better ones are all timed really well, and they're meshing beautifully without friction. And then I would say the ultimate timing is... We're not worried about any of that stuff. We're just sensing the entire motion of the entire thing. The the tempo of the song. You know, the song starts going, and it's a certain tempo. And instead of me paying attention to the guitar player, or the other guitar player, or the banjo player, or the bass player, uh, who may all be playing every which way all around the beat, I just focus on the song. And I just try to get with that. And if everybody would just try to get with that, the big wheel, which nobody is driving, we've just selected where we're going to stand on the wheel, how far from the center, that'll determine the speed of the song. And everybody needs to be that same distance from the center. And if you're rushing, it just means you're a little too far from the center. If you're dragging, you're too close to the center. So you get this big wheel turning. So I imagine... Could I build a little model of this thing to illustrate that basic boom chick rhythm of the bass and the mandolin? And then I need four notes for the guitar. And then I need eight for that rolling banjo sound or that lead picking mandolin. What if I built a little model? So I took a big disc in my mind, built a big rotating disc in my mind. And I put one dowel stick at the edge sticking up about four inches high. And that was my base note. So as this is turning, I've got a little feeler, a little finger sticking out. Every time that thing rotates, I get boom, base note, boom, base note, boom. Just picture that turntable with one stick poking up and there's a little finger. That's you, the bass player. And you just sensing that song coming around when it comes around to the right place, boom, the note happens. Okay. On the opposite side of the wheel, and I put it on the bottom side of the wheel, I've got the mantle and chop. So the wheel is turning, and I got it 180 degrees out from the base stick dowel. I got a little mandolin dowel over there, and it has a little finger out. That is the mandolin player sensing the song. The song tempo is what everybody's tuning into, not tuning into each other. They're tuning into the, the tempo of the song. So you got the boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick. They, all you have to do is place the little pegs 180 degrees from each other on the wheel. 
have one on the bottom and one on the top and a little finger sticking out. You're the sensing instrument. You're the musician. You're sensing the song go by. And when your time comes around, boom, you hit your note. When your mandolin time comes around, you hit your chop. Then for the guitar, I put four dowels on the turntable. And these, I make a little shorter than the bass dowel so that the finger of the bass doesn't accidentally hit the guitar fingers. And so if that was four inches, I'll make the guitar little dowel sticks three inches tall. And I'll put four of them on there. So for every bass note, there's going to be four guitar notes. A bass strum, bass strum. Uh, so I put a little finger just below the bass finger. And every time that wheel turns, you get boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick. And there's your guitar. Then I put a dowel stick in between each of those. And now I have eight vertical dowel sticks on my turntable. That's my banjo notes. And I put a little banjo finger right over there, directly underneath the guitar finger. And the banjo players, he's just sensing where to place those eight notes. Dick, 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 around and around she goes. And then for that fiddle player, you could just put a little wheel on the side of the the big wheel and it's just spinning smoothly at all times and the fiddle player can just engage or disengage at will and play any length note he feels like and then if he wants to play rhythm like a guitar or like a you know shuffle rhythm doom digga doom digga doom he can jump in there and be locked into the banjo thing or the mandolin thing you see what i mean but that way of thinking about this of thinking about it's not up to you to set the timing. It's up to you to know the timing of the entire entity and the entity like a forest doesn't exist. There are trees, but there is no forest because the forest is just a bunch of trees. The forest is a concept in your mind. You see a bunch of trees and you go, Oh, there's a forest. There really isn't a forest. There's just a bunch of trees. The forest exists in your mind. It's a concept. And that's the way this timing works. There is a timing mechanism for the song that is a conceptual timing mechanism. And if maybe if you picture it as this big wheel and you just connect to the wheel and sense the motion of the wheel. And kind of like spinning the big wheel on Wheel of Fortune, you know? Picture that big wheel turning and that little flipper going tick, 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 tick. Well, that'd probably be like 30 second notes. But if you put those little pegs at the correct locations and sense them correctly, you're going to be playing in time. Everybody's going to be sensing the same time reference, which is the big wheel. Hopefully this didn't blow anybody's mind. And no, I have not been taking any sort of uh, mind-altering drugs or anything for this episode. This is just kind of how my mind works. And that I hope in at least attempting to picture these things, that the next time you sit down in a jam session, that you don't look around to each other and go, you sped up, he's dragging, he's slowing down, he's playing out of time. You know what? Maybe all of you, need to look into that imaginary center of the song. Everybody just play the song. Play the song. Get with the song. If everybody would just get with the song, which doesn't really exist, it's a concept in your mind, I think it'll be a lot easier to play. You just wait for your little dowel stick to come around, and when it comes around, you hit it. And if you want to speed up, you simply increase the diameter of the big wheel. You want to slow down, you make it smaller. But it always turns the same speed. Anyway, how's that for uh, blowing your mind on a whatever day this is you're listening to? Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this, this particular episode. I want to thank the uh, very few people who have become Grasstalk Radio supporters. And I don't mean that to uh, belittle anyone who has done it, trust me, if you are a Grasstalk Radio supporter, I love you because it's making this possible. Or if you've gone over and just grabbed something from my store, you know, as a way to show your thanks for the show, 
I'm not talking about you here, but the rest of you people, uh, come on now. Uh, don't let me be one of those podcasts that, you know, you come back and go, God, he hadn't put out an episode in five months. I wonder where he went. Uh, I guess he got him a job as a greeter at Walmart. You know, <laughs> hey, and trust me, that has crossed my mind. I'm sure I could do better uh, doing that than all the crazy stuff I do. But anyway, keep me out of uh, wiping off the carts at, at Walmart by supporting the show. Tell your friends about it. Get that little flyer, that little quarter-sized flyer. I mean, you can invest one sheet of paper and a little dribble of ink into printing out a couple of flyers and hand them to your picking buddies. And if you don't have any picking buddies, go find some. Go listen to a partner in crime. Come on. Get out there. Help me spread the word. Uh, thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you in the next podcast. He saw that will where in the middle of the air. Ezekiel saw the wheel. He saw that will in the middle of the air. Well, I'm a singing Ezekiel saw the wheel. He saw that will where in the middle of the air. Ezekiel saw the wheel. He saw that will in the middle of the air. Now one of these moons about five o'clock. Don't you know in the middle of the air. Don't go make my world go a real and a rock, you know. In the middle of the air. Well, I'm a singing Ezekiel saw the wheel. He saw that will where in the middle of the air. Ezekiel saw the wheel. He saw that will in the middle of the air. No, I told you once and I told you twice. Don't you know in the middle of the air. Tell all them sinners going to hell for the rolling them dice, you know. In the middle of the air. Well, I'm a singing Ezekiel saw.